What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout. I am the CMO W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast. I am still here at the Millennial Tech and Change Summit uh, put on by our clients Comcast. And I am lucky enough to uh, still be at the Pearl, but I am joined by David Duncan. Um, David is a very well-established journalist and book author. He's written eight books. We'll get into that in a minute. Welcome, David. Thank you. Great to be here. So it's great to have you. And I have to tell you, I've done a lot of these podcasts. This is my fourth series, but you actually have done radio work on NPR in addition to your multiple uh your multiple publications you've contributed to. So it's a little bit intimidating to be sitting here doing this. But I do want to dig into um, some of the publications you've written to, which is really like a who's who when you look at it. Wired Magazine, MIT's Tech Review, The Atlantic, uh, The Daily Beast, which I think you do some writing for now. Um, did you ever envision coming out of school, I think you went to school at Vassar, coming out like, hey, I'm going to be this amazing journalist someday, not to mention all the books. Uh, talk a little bit about that journey. Well, you know, you get old enough and you've been around long enough. I mean, you just you pile on a lot of stuff. Um, but, um, you know, I coming out of college, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to see the world and understand things. And it really all comes from um, being fascinated with human nature. And, you know, especially I was I did a lot of different types of writing as a foreign correspondent. I covered politics, uh, White House, Congress. Um, you know, with there were a lot of iterations, uh, and I've settled on uh, life science technology because I think it is the most exciting thing happening this century. Um, but it all really goes back to I've had a very eclectic career. I'm also trained as a historian, so I've written a couple of history books. Um, but it's all about the human condition, and especially in an era when technology is becoming so powerful. And what do we do with it as as humans? Yeah, and I will say, as we were prepping for this, I found out that you've actually come to our J.P. Morgan party, which was uh, kind of cool. I knew you worked and in, in, in wrote for biotech, um, and I had heard your name before, but nice to know that you know we've moved in the same orbits. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, moving on from just the writing. You've done a couple of interesting things recently. So one was you were the health strategist in residence at IDEO, which I'm sure was very cool, so I'd love to hear about that. And then you also created this uh, company called Arc Fusion, uh, which I believe, if I've got it right, is focusing on the convergence of uh, or fusion of biomedicine, information technologies, and big data, which I think does sort of rally around this life sciences, but these are areas that are very important to us as an agency. Um, talk a little bit about the IDEO and then the, the newer uh, venture. Sure. I mean. IDEO was actually a sort of joint project with Arc Fusion and IDEO around some of the events that we did and uh, kind of taking themes that Arc Fusion does. And basically, Arc Fusion holds events all over the world. We've done about 20 or 21 or 22 of these events. Um, and each of them is a life science theme. So like AI and health. Or we do kind of really grounded ones like, like one called Money. Are we insane? You know, how to pay for the future with healthcare. Uh, we've done the future of humans and technology. And they're short events, evening events, um, and, but they're kind of on steroids. We have a reception, we invite 80 leaders, uh, we have a, a program that's five minute talks and panels. Very formal though, we, we've 
film them. We have Arc Fusion talks, uh, which you know, which we post on our site. And but amazing people, you know, these people that I have been privileged to get access to as a journalist. You know, the top people in the world come and they speak and they attend. And then we put everybody around small tables to answer a question about the theme, and then we record that. So the ideal process was mostly around our AI and health dinner and project. And we developed some reports and some sort of white papers out of that, um, you know, starting with the input from this dinner and this evening. And it was a bit of an experiment to see what would happen if you basically give the smartest people around this topic a little wine, you know, kind of open it up. You get them really juiced with these talks, and we also threw in music and theater. Actually, that night we had this dance troupe that looked like robots. And, you know, you then get them going on a topic, and, you know, what do you capture out of that? What, what do they really think? I mean, these are people who are, like, you know, designing driverless cars and, you know, spaceships, and Ray Kurzweil was there, and the you know, IBM Watson team was there, some of the designers of that. I mean, what do these guys think about when they're not, you know, having their head down, you know, doing their daily job? So that was a bit of an experiment, but it worked really well. In fact, I, as a journalist, you know, doing a whole series of articles and now writing a book on robots. And that partly came out of that whole project. So learned a lot at IDEO, fantastic. And then tell us a little more about Arc, Arc Fusion as well. Sure. sure. So, so Arc Fusion, like you said, um, it the general theme is something that I have been picked up on and even been a little frustrated about because um, this idea of fusing uh, biomedicine, uh, you know, IT and health. And obviously these are three huge trends and really a lot of human activity and, and treasure and all of that is being focused on those three trends, but they're still separate. They're siloed and even health and biomedicine don't always communicate well. You know, the idea of being well and people wanting to eat right and all of that is still not as connected to biomedicine as it should be. And the IT people are still, they're engineers. I mean, I once wrote a piece called uh, Engineers are from Mars and Biologists are from Venus. And, uh, you know, one guy who actually responded to that said, yeah, we all need to come back to Earth, which is right in between. So um, the idea there was to try to bring these communities together. Because as a journalist, I get to talk to all three communities. And that sort of synergy has been fascinating. And I think it's actually really taking off. And I'm even starting to see the word fusion used, which I just, it really means convergence. But, uh, you know, that's an overused word. So as a word guy, I like the, the word fusion. Well, it's, it's a very cool concept and very much needed. I do want to talk a little bit about your books because clearly you think at a different plane and looking through your books, which, by the way, it was interesting because I noticed there was some history and then you have these very future thinking. So I think the most recent one, if I'm not mistaken, other than the robot book, was uh, one where I'm a Beatles fan, so I appreciated this. And it's when I'm 164, I think, riffing off of theirs. And then I'm going to read the second part, the subtitle, because it's really important. It's the new science of radical life extension and what happens if it succeeds, which is, I think, something we haven't really spent a lot of time. But I also want to talk a little bit about one of your earlier books, which was equally interesting, and that was the geneticist that played hoops with my DNA. <laughs> so talk about you know creating very funny juxtapositions with culture and sports references. So let's start with the when I'm 164 and, and talk a little bit about you know what inspired you to write the book and and maybe share a little more with the people listening in. You know what that's about. The when I'm 164 and the whole idea of writing about longevity really started. You know I'm here in Silicon Valley and. There are a lot of people here, especially in the IT world, that want to live forever. And, uh, you know, I call, I call them the forever people. And, you know, I, 
I guess I got a little frustrated again. I <laughs> I tend to write about things I'm frustrated about or you know want to try to understand better, and I didn't feel like the these people on. And some of these are, are amazing uh, scientists and you know technology people who actually may make it happen. You know, extend lifespan to 164 or beyond. But I think we need to do some thinking. And as we do with all technologies, what does that mean? So that part of the subtitle you read, "What happens if it succeeds?" That's really what the thought experiment is all about, and that's what the book is about. And it actually was a TEDx talk in Brussels. And we came up with that, that crazy title. And I actually rewrote the lyrics to the song, uh, you know, for another century here, a uh, different century. And if, if we uh, actually extended to 164, um, you know, lines like, if I'd been married 23 times, would that bother you? All, all these different aspects of what happens if this technology actually works. And the talk, in fact, started with, I'm going to assume that everybody out here that's in biotech and life sciences and biomedicine, actually, it's worked, okay? All these great cures, we don't have any diseases, and we're all going to live, you know, hundreds of years at least. Then what? And so that's really what the book is about. And I had a program at Berkeley at the time called the Center for Life Science Policy, and we did some surveying and research around how long people said they would wanted to live uh, and why and why or why not. And so it's, it's partly based on, you know, it's fairly loosey-goosey research, but, um, you know, why would somebody want to live to be 164 or not? So I'm curious now, what was the average age of, you know, this anecdotal research that people said they wanted to live to? We did an online survey, and then I, when I used to give that talk, I would ask the audience to raise their hands. And we gave four different possible ages that you might want to live to. And we didn't give any caveats that, you know, there's... There, you could imagine there's a technology that you can live a long time or not. So we ask, do you want to live to be 80, 120, 150, or forever? So Aaron, how long would you the want to live? The number that I have in my head is 120. And I actually had that before you threw out those uh, ages. Yeah, and obviously those are sort of, you know, you can extrapolate. if you're, Maybe you want to live to be 110 or, or, or more. But we, we needed four solid numbers there. So it broke down. It was kind of surprising. Or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it was 60%. 80. So that's the average lifespan basically in the West right now. So most people can't really imagine living much longer than that. Uh, it was about 30%, um, 120, um, about 8%, 7 or 8%, 150, and then the rest forever. So not that many people, although those numbers did change over time. It was interesting. It's partly because the audience, probably I speak more to like futuristic thinking people. And there was a, one meeting at Arizona State, of all places, uh, where everybody voted for forever. Although it was a meeting on longevity and making the FDA have a regulatory pathway towards longevity drugs. So clearly these people had thought about it. It is interesting, though, your point about, I think, we haven't mentally been prepared for what would it be like to live beyond 100, right? Or even 80, as, as a lot of people. So there probably is, as we expand the ability to live out past 100, people will understand that you can actually live with a quality of life. I don't know why I picked 120, but for me it feels like that's long enough. Not that I ever want to die, but anyway, it's an interesting thought experiment. I do want to talk a little bit, though, about the uh, geneticist that played uh, uh, hoops with my DNA. So what was that about, and what was the inspiration for that title? Well, it's funny because I actually hated that title. Um, the publisher kind of insisted on it. My title was Masterminds genius DNA and the quest to rewrite life. 
And that book is about, uh, it's a chapter of each of the eight or nine people who, or at least eight or nine people who are largely responsible for the whole genetic kind of revolution of, started with Watson and Crick, and you know, Craig Venner, um, uh, Francis Collins, uh, Doug Melton, who's a major stem cell guy, people like that, Sidney Brenner, who helped Crick actually do all the hard work about figuring out what's going on with genetics. Um, so the first chapter was called The Geneticist Who Played Hoops With My DNA. And that was actually about a, a, a guy in Iceland who's a geneticist who's a major figure named Kerry Stevenson, who's a Viking, you know, comes from the Vikings uh, in Iceland. And believe it or not, Iceland was a, they, they basically sequenced everybody in Iceland very early. And it's a kind of isolated population, so you could get some interesting data early on. So he tested me, and he chose to inform me as I was going up for a layup playing basketball that I was genetically defective. And given that the guy's like 6'6", and I'm about six foot, he was, he was creaming me, and it's pretty much my only score I was going to make. And so, anyway, it's a kind of funny story about how I got my, my genetic, you know, delivered uh, by, by doctor, this doctor on the basketball court. That's funny, and that's actually a very funny visual, especially in Iceland. Um, bringing us back home to today, so you are speaking at this event that Comcast is putting on this Millennial Tech and Change Summit. A uh, lot of great speakers today. The panel that you led was VCs for Good. You had a diverse set of folks up on the stage. Um, give us the little, you know, one-minute redux of what that was about and some of the questions you asked the venture capitalists. No, sure. First of all, I'm very impressed by the meeting. I mean, in terms of uh, diversity, uh, lots of different uh, aspects and points of view. Um, I mean, I was really happy with the panel. First of all, there were only two dudes up there. And uh, so that was nice. And these amazing women. Um, and it was very global. So we had a woman from Kenya, uh, a couple people from China. Um, and we talked, well, it was partly a, a kind of how-to for the audience, which is mostly entrepreneurs. You know, what do we, how do you make a pitch? But I kept wanting to really bring it back to this idea of technology, which, as we've discussed, is very important to me to understand the, a technology by itself is sort of a, a neutral force. And it can be used for good or bad. And so I kind of push the panel a little bit into, as investors, you know, actually obviously trying to make profit, um, you know, how do we push technology towards good? We talked a little bit about changing business models, because most of what these guys are talking about might have been nonprofits, you know, in a previous generation. And it was interesting hearing the millennial point of view, too, because, you know, they kind of looked at me funny, like, what? Nonprofits? I mean, I'm sure they're aware of them, and some of them even work for them, but... That was the only game in town 30 years ago. And now you've got all kinds of fascinating and innovative models, uh, Africa, you know, Asia, um, you know, trying to figure out how to combine, if you will, maybe the best of capitalism you know, with, with trying to do good and be altruistic. Yeah, and I don't know if you've heard uh, John Battelle speak. He spoke earlier today, but you and John are very much like-minded in that regard. So uh, probably be interesting to have you guys get up on stage at some point and chat. Um, I do want to take advantage of the fact that you have done a lot of thinking about biotech, biomedicine, technology. What's something other than people living to 164 or you know forever? What's a you know trend that you're seeing or something that you're sort of paying close attention to these days in your world? 
Wow, where to start? I mean, you know, when I chose... You can't say AI, VR, AR, or autonomous driving. I did, by the way, speaking of the panel, it was pretty funny. At the very end of the panel, I pointed out that not a single one of these VCs had ever uttered the word AI or, or the phrase artificial intelligence. Part of why I joke with you, because I was actually surprised and impressed that that didn't come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah which, uh, you know, supposedly you can't even walk into a VC a VC's office unless you have something to do with AI right now because it's overhyped and maybe we're ending that cycle. But um, I, I'm covering a whole range of things right now. Um, and let's see, I have a piece coming out on Wired in April on synthetic biology. And we've heard about gene editing, but this is actually the next phase. It's what they call whole genome or, or, or genome scale um, synthetic biology, which instead of edit, it's, if, well, you imagine editing a book so that's that's new in genetics you can actually edit the letters you know swap them in and out you know cut delete insert um, but this new type of synthetic biology is actually writing it so you you start from scratch and you build a whole chromosome or a whole genome and so there's a scientist at Harvard that I was working with for this story who is setting out to synthesize the first human genome and right now we synthesize bacteria, and there's a group at NYU that's about to finish yeast. And by the way, this is really hard to do. Uh, it's very expensive because, you know, DNA is a molecule. It's um, unbelievable. It's nanoscale thin, but it's about six feet long. So in every one of your cells, you have, you know, all of the DNA in a human DNA is, if you, if you could stretch it out, it's six feet long, but it's like the size of a few atoms wide. So imagine trying to build one of those. It's apparently why no one's taking God's job yet, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Although these guys are, these guys are working on it. But I tell you, the crazy thing is that they're not just copying a human genome. And by the way, they're using my sequence for this, which is kind of weird. Um, they are actually improving it. So I'm calling it. This will be my doppelganger plus. And so I'm writing about that, but. Uh, lots of other aspects of biotech. That's fascinating. And so in your perfect self, you'll be 6'6", and I think you have blue eyes still, right? So you're good there, but... Well, we're not quite there yet, but yeah. Actually, this particular um, science is they're, they're recoding it, as I say. So they're, they're changing a pattern of letters, you know, the A, C, G, and T, letters of genetics. They're changing select... It's about, I think it's about 1% or 2% of the genome... Uh, which would make a cell with this genome in it impervious to viruses. So we're not yet there like, you know, uh, you know, 610, you know, super smart. But it's the same basic technology. And that's, in fact, we don't really know why exactly uh, people are more intelligent than others. I mean, but as soon as we do, it, it clearly is genetic. There's some genetic factors anyway. So that, that's the only thing holding us back from that. It's not that we can't do it once we figure out why you know, why it exists. Truly a brave new world upon us. Absolutely. So let's shift a little bit more to you personally. And there's a question I normally like to ask about who influences you, but I think I want to take advantage because you just reaffirmed this. You've met some amazing people in your life. And I think I asked John Battelle a similar question. Who have been one or two of the most amazing? I mean, you met Ray Kurzweil. I'm sure that was pretty cool. But one or two of the most amazing people you've ever met over the course of your career. And maybe someone you haven't met that you'd like to that's still alive. Those are always hard questions because, you know, there's so many people for different reasons. Um, and 
I think I would pick um, personally uh, somebody out of my own life, which is my grandmother, who's very important to me, and really taught me. She was a writer and taught me a lot of what I do. So I know maybe you weren't expecting that answer, but I actually love that answer. And she lived an amazing life. You know, she was born in Western Kansas, before electricity, before radio. But actually, they may have had radio. Um, but um, you know, before all the modern things. She, yeah, when she died at 93, she was online. She was taking computer courses. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever have a lifetime with that much change in it. Maybe, but um, and the second person, um, I'd probably pull out one of the scientists that. I've worked with a lot, and I wrote a prof several profiles, including in the New York Times, which is George Church. And he's a geneticist at Harvard, he's probably one of the most famous geneticists. But I, I meet a lot of interesting people who are just, you know, out there, want to try things, but they're also spiritual people. They're, you know, they're thoughtful, um, and George is all the above. He has one of the largest labs in the world, really, of, of a, you know, single. Um, principal investigator and he's at Har as I said at Harvard but this guy you walk down his lab as I said in the New York Times profile I did and if you look left you know you see stem cells you look right you know you see gene editing you look left he's he's cloning a woolly mammoth which is what he's doing and you know it's like you're walking down a corridor and to the right and left of you is the future well that's interesting for two reasons one my daughter who's 10 and I the other day were talking about the ability to clone dinosaurs or woolly mammoths or cave people. Uh, I don't you know what the technically correct term, Neanderthals. Um, but I love your answer, and I think it's a testament to who you are. I've only recently got to meet you, but I sense a strong sense of humility for everything that you've accomplished. You're very approachable, and so picking your grandmother and picking someone that's a famous you know, scientist versus a tech leader or whomever, and again, I know you've met a lot of very impressive people. So last two questions, and I don't even know if you have time to read other people's books because you're busy writing a lot, but you know, assuming that maybe over the last few years there's been a book or two that you picked up and maybe even pecked through, anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, again, I mean, picking one book or even two books is really hard. I, I do a lot of reading. Um, I would say probably the most, one of the more influential writers anyway, uh, books, was the guy I wrote my my college thesis on, which is you know pretty predictable answer I guess you know Ernest Hemingway, but he taught me a lot and I actually he started out at the Kansas City Star and I'm from Kansas City, and I went back and wrote uh, my thesis and then wrote a, several articles about some early articles that Hemingway wrote and these were unbylined. It, he was at the Star when he was 17 years old and you know, before he did any of the writing that he later did. But he learned a lot of his style from one of the editors there. And I went back and found some of these stories that were clearly his. And he'd written about you know, that he'd done this story or that story. And so I've always been amazed at his early writing. You know, it's modern and, and, and startling you know, in its simplicity. And I don't know, the, I, I, it's hard to even guess where to go with the other one. but. Um, I'm reading, well, I'm doing this book on robots right now, and I'm rereading Isaac Asimov and some of the early sci-fi writers who are really thoughtful about technology. And the first thing to say about the is how amazingly accurate they were in so many things. And the second thing is uh, how full of humanity they were. I mean, I, you know, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, 
um, you know, the early guys, Ray Bradbury. So. so I have to say, I'm not shocked, but that was one of the most amazing answers I've gotten and I've talked to, I think you're 44 or 45 here of this series. Um, and I love, I, I did no idea that uh, Hemingway actually wrote, you know, for anything other than writing his own book. So I learned a little something. He was a newspaper man, actually, when he started. Yeah, I had no idea. He, well, he was at the Star. You know, he came from Chicago, and there was a family connection, I think, that got him down. But Kansas City Star, I mean, it, you know, newspapers are in such decline now. It was actually one of the great newspapers of, of that era. Um, and this particular editor had really developed the short declarity sentence that became you know, the signature of Hemingway. But then he went on, he was in World War I, and then he came back and wrote for the Toronto Star, which is, he was a correspondent in Paris, and that's, you know, that's when he started writing his books. Well, that's amazing. And uh, like I said, I'm appreciative to learn something today. So we will get to our last question, and this is a fun one, although a lot of people get stumped on this, but uh, imagine you're on a desert island, uh, you are alone, you can only pick one album to listen to. What album would you pick and why? Can I pick humanity's greatest music hits? So I try to avoid people doing greatest hits, but given the fact that I did not give you a ton of time to prep for this, and you've had such amazing other answers, I will let you answer however you're... How about my greatest hits? That works perfectly. Um, I'd probably want to take you know, one of my playlists. Um, and I, the problem is picking which one, because I listen to music when I write, and I actually it helps me kind of gauge where I am during the day. I start out with classical, you know, pretty soft stuff. Um, and I, it kind of moves into faster and louder and crazier during the day. Um, so I probably want to be able to include all of that. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. Um, maybe if I had to actually really pick one, probably be Miles Davis kind of blue because it's got everything. That's an excellent choice and a good note to end on. I have to ask you, are your lists on Spotify and are they open lists so that if someone wanted to follow them they could or you know I am I really should do that no it's still Apple I still have which is fine I was just thinking it might be fun to link to it we will link to your TEDx video um, anyway this has been you know, my kids are driving me crazy about that that I I, I I still stuff from them all the time on Spotify. it is a great way to do it so uh, and, and I have talked to a lot of musical artists we've interviewed some and they say if you do paid premium Spotify while it's not making them rich they appreciate that and it does have a benefit to them so anyway dave thank you so much this is aaron strout the cmo of w tow group the host of the what's to know podcast show and i've had the pleasure of just being educated by a very smart man very humble man uh dave duncan who's an author journalist uh we'll both give a little shout out to jim weiss at w tow group since we both uh, know jim well but thank you dave thank you very much it was fun Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.